the Foundations of Learning podcast where we believe every child deserves a tailored and enriching educational experience. By embracing diverse perspectives and sharing practical tips, I hope to inspire you to actively participate in your child's learning journey, fostering a love for knowledge and nurturing the skills necessary for success in a rapidly changing world. Let's get started. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we are going to talk about math. So generally I talk about reading, um, but this is the Foundations of Learning podcast, which means that we're going to talk all things education. Um, And I had put a question up on um, my Instagram stories to see what you guys wanted to talk about. And somebody brought up um, the question, how can I help teach my child that has an artistic brain math. So I went through a bunch of science on just best practices on teaching math and um, also just providing you with the information that I have found through experience um, that is helpful for every child, not just um, artistic brains or whatever, because there is this thought on um, the different learning styles of like, well, this person's a visual learner and this person's. And what we've actually come to find is that that um, doesn't matter necessarily when we are using best practices or we are using um, research-based strategies to teach children how to read, teach them math, teach them how to write, things like that. So We're going to go through that and look at some videos. We're going to just kind of explore best practices and what you can do to be successful in teaching your child math. All right. So first of all, I want you to think of either somebody that's struggling in math. Maybe, um, you know, you struggle yourself in math or maybe your child struggles in math um, or maybe math comes naturally to you. But For me, math has always been very difficult. I always told myself, like, I don't have a math brain, right? Like, that's kind of what my story to myself was, which is terrible to do. When you tell yourself something, your physiology actually changes in your body. So if you do have a child that thinks this about themselves, try to get that out of their head. Or even if you think this about yourself or whatever that, or even if you think, yeah, there's just some people that have more of a math brain and some people that have more of a reading brain, because this just isn't true based on lots of brain research that we've done. Um, and that everyone is capable of learning math. It's just that we haven't been using best practices or everybody can learn to read. It's just, we haven't been using best practices. So when we know better, we can do better. But I have always struggled in math and I finally, so in my um, college courses, you have to take an elementary math um, course or whatever. You have to take two of them. Um, And one is for early grades and one is for um, later grades. And it wasn't until I took these courses that I was like, oh boy, I realized where I had holes. All of a sudden, math started to make sense for me, and it was using the practices that we're going to talk about today, Um, and it was just wild that I had never been taught this way, and in having to learn again all of these um, skills in math and then having to be able to explain it and reteach it to somebody else just made so much more sense for me, and I finally got math. And it was, 
anyway, so I took what I had learned in college, I applied it in my classroom. Obviously, there were some trial and errors that I had to go through to figure out how to successfully help these kids. But the good news is, is because I struggled so much in math, is that when a child had a misconception, it was really easy for me to try to break it down for them and explain it to them because I had struggled with it and I had struggled with the same misconceptions that they had had. Um, So it was just funny going to this new way of teaching math, which I know parents hate because they're like, Common Core is the worst. Why would we teach these strategies when we could just use the algorithm? And we're going to talk about that and why it's important that we don't just teach an algorithm. So really quick, I want to go over a video where they're explaining what the science of math movement is, because I talk a lot about the science of reading because it is decades of brain research on how we actually learn to read, which are best practices, they're research-based, and they are actually effective. We have decades of research to prove it in teaching reading. And so now there's a movement for the science of math. And so let's take a listen to this video and discuss what this is. Science of reading. And we see the science of reading as a movement that is and was responding to many students who struggled with reading. And so when we thought about this term movement, we looked at the definition for movement and we see that a movement is something that is trying to make change occur. And so that's what we're trying to do with this group associated with the science of math. Now with the science of math, we are trying to change the way that mathematics is taught in schools so that every student in a school has an opportunity to succeed with math. And so we see that with the science of math, the primary goal is to provide educators, caregivers, and really anyone who's interested in education with easy to access information about evidence-based practices in math. Evidence-based practices are those things that have shown time and time again to be helpful for students to learn math well. All right. So as you heard, it's a movement. It is us looking at or educators or researchers in the field looking at best practices, what actually works with most children or all children to teach math and providing educators that training so that we can ensure that students learn math because our nation's report card right now is terrible in reading and in math. Um, The New York Times actually put out on their Instagram our statistics on that because the NAE NAEP or NAEP or however you want to say that put out our report card and it looks bad, y'all. Fourth graders, it was like 60-some percent of fourth graders can't read on grade level and 60-some percent of fourth graders can't do math on grade level. Same thing with eighth graders. Eighth graders, it was actually slightly worse, which is not acceptable when most people can learn how to effectively and efficiently do math and read and write and do all of these things. So there needs to be a shift or a movement with educators, with the way that our system is working, and with having caregivers um, participating in helping their children as well. Because there are so many studies that prove that parent involvement is the largest indicator for student success. So it's important as a caregiver that you also understand how we learn math and to su- how to support your child at home. Um, they also have a website that's called, 
um, the science of math. So if you just go to the science of math.com and they have a bunch of printables. So they um, talk about what the science of math is. They talk about what is math proficiency, what is explicit instruction, common misconceptions um, for all kinds of things um, like mindset um, and um like inquiry-based verse explicit instruction and so on. So I'm going to go further on the science of math and we're, I'm just going to read to you um, what this document is saying the science of math is. So the science of math is a movement focused on using objective evidence about how students learn math in order to make educational decisions and to inform policy and practice. Um, and so the advocates for the science of math, they rely on the well-researched well-researched instructional approaches and research about how students learn. So this is descriptive, qualitative, quantitative, and correlational research. So qualitative is um, do students feel like they are actually improving in their own math abilities is what I'm assuming because qualitative is always something that's more about um, uh, like feeling or things like that. And then quantitative, this is actual number-based data are kids actually succeeding? We're going to test them on these skills um, after using these strategies and are they actually getting better at doing these things? Um, and then correlational, this is going to also just be um, like based on like the like correlation to mindset, the correlation to how they feel about math and the correlation to the best practices that teachers are using, things like that. Um, and this actually does give a statistic, which is really, really sad. Um, so currently, the majority of students in the U.S. do not meet minimum levels of math proficiency. So again, grade four, it was 59% are not meeting um, minimum, minimum levels of proficiency. Grade eight, 66%. And grade 12, 76%. So it, we're not doing well, y'all. Um and so their goal really is just to ensure that all students, regardless of background or status, have access to high quality math instruction. Really what they are looking at as far as these so-called, I guess, um, well-researched instructional approaches, it's very similar to the science of reading. So the main points are that we are using explicit instruction, we're using a systematic approach, we're using concrete visual and abstract learning, we're using a lot of discussion and think alouds through the adult solving the problem and thinking aloud, which we will talk about all of this and what this means in just a second, and then also the child explaining their thinking, um, and then reviewing skills and using mental math strategies to solve problems. Those are kind of like the top approaches that they are talking about and are well-researched that work well, which is also what I learned in my college courses and also what I applied in my own classroom and found a lot of success with. Um, <clears throat> okay, so really quick, let's go to explicit instruction. What is explicit instruction and what does that mean? So again, on the science of math um, page, they do have an explanation of what an explicit instruction is. So explicit instruction is structured, systematic, scaffolded instruction, and there are many descriptions of it, all of which involve a combination of modeling and practice. So um, when we are doing explicit instruction, this is kind of the, I guess, uh, model that they're showing. So first it starts off with modeling. So you are showing a step-by-step -step explanation on how to work on a math problem. And this is led by the teacher, but should be considered a dialogue between the teacher and the students. 
Um, the explanation may include one or several planned examples. So what they're saying is that you are thinking of, okay, what is it that I want to teach the child? Um, let's say I'm wanting to teach them addition within five, we'll say. Um, I am modeling how I'm going to solve these problems and I have the examples already planned out. So it's not on the like fly in my pants here. I'm, I'm actually, you know, I've got the problems that I'm going to do. Um, and I'm explaining, I'm thinking out loud as I'm solving, I'm showing them the step-by-step process and they are discussing it with me. So I might ask them, you know, as I'm doing these problems, what was one of the strategies I used or whatever? How did I use that strategy? Because I've already thought out loud how I'm doing it. So if I'm showing them two plus one, there's a lot of other stuff I have to explain as far as like, what is this plus sign? What is an equal sign? What does the sentence mean? Do they have to know what two is? They have to know what one is and in quantity and know what that is. They have to know what addition means. Like there's a lot they have to know. So you would go over that. Um, but as I'm doing two plus one, maybe I'm using a concrete method, which means I'm using objects to build. So I am now putting two objects under the number two. I am putting one object under the number one. When I am adding together, I am going to group this together and see how many total I have or what the sum is. So one strategy I can use is to build the numbers and then to count out how many I have. So if I have two plus one more, I'm going to count one, two, three. How many do I have? Oh, I can see that I have three total objects, right? So really explaining to them what I'm doing so that they can replicate that in the future on their own. Okay. So the next part is the practice, which is the guided practice. Now I'm going to give them problems and we're going to work through it together. We are going to discuss what are we doing? They're solving it on their own with my help. Then you're going to go to independent practice, which is where now they're practicing that skill on their own. And you're going to be giving immediate feedback so that if there are any misconceptions or holes, you can fix it right then and there so that they're not practicing it incorrectly. Um, with the supports, like I said, you're going to be asking questions. Think about questions that might come up for your child or your student before you're even doing the lesson. What misconceptions might they have? Um, you are eliciting frequent, frequent responses, which is what I'm talking about as far as like providing that feedback, thinking out loud, telling them what I'm doing, and then having them also think out loud have them walk you through the steps out loud so that you can identify what misconceptions they have right then and there. Um, so that is really what they're talking about as far as explicit instruction goes. Now, the systematic approach is saying like, okay, we have to understand what skills the child needs before they do X, Y, and Z. So before they can add and subtract, they need to have an understanding of number quantity. They need to understand that this is what two is. They need to be able to build with two. They need to understand how much two is, right? Then they need to be able to understand counting. Can they count? Can they put things in order? Um, and then they have to understand the symbol too. They need to know what two looks like as far as the symbol goes, as far as drawing a picture of it. They need to know what that number two is. Then they need to know what the addition sign is. They have to be able to recognize that. They have to know what the equal sign is. They have to know what addition even means. They have to have vocabulary like sum 
add-ins, right? All together, they have to have these vocabulary words in their vocabulary and what they mean. They have to understand equal and what equal means. So there's so much that's happening that they have to know before they can even add. So thinking about that systematic approach as far as what your child needs to know and where they're going. Um, And then let's go to the concrete, visual, and abstract. So like I had said, concrete means that you are using an actual object. So maybe you're using Cheerios, maybe you're using blocks, um, maybe you're using base 10 model blocks. If you've never seen base 10 model blocks, um, you probably remember them as a child, um, but you had like the square, which was 100. You had the cube, which was 1,000. You had the rod that was 10. It was like the 10 little squares in a rod, right? Or you have one um, one block, which represents ones. Um, if you don't know what base 10 blocks are, just Google base 10 blocks and you'll be like, oh yeah, I remember those from school, right? So um, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about a concrete method. It's something they can move, they can build with to understand a concept. Um, and then you have visuals. So this is where we're now going into the pictorial stage, right? We have our pictures that we can now represent our thinking. So instead of using the blocks to show our thinking, now we're using pictures to show our thinking. And then we move into abstract, which is the actual algorithm or the number sentence that you are providing the child. So two plus one equals. Now we're actually showing our thinking in that abstract model and solving it. Um, And then the think aloud, like I said, was where we're just explaining what we're doing step by step and then also having the child do the same thing. If you are in a classroom, you can have discussions with um, strategically um, placed partners. So I always strategically um, made my partners to where I knew like, okay, I had a lower kid working with a mid kid as far as their abilities go so that they're somewhat on the same level but one kid can help the other a little bit more. Um, And that also helps this mid kid to get really good at math because they have to teach it to another um, and so on. So you could have them have discussions. How did you solve the problem? How did you know you had the right answer? Um, How did, what's another way you could solve the problem and so on. So you're having those discussions with the kids. And then they didn't talk about this, but reviewing the skills is so important. If you teach a skill, they can get rusty on it pretty fast. And so it's so important that you do a spiral review where even though you've taught addition within five and you're like, oh, they mastered it, they've got that. Just go back, see, can they, or even strategies. If you've taught specific strategies, see if they can still use those strategies to solve. Now I wanna talk about language because like I had said, there's a lot that students are learning as far as the language goes in math and vocabulary in math is very important to understand. If we can't speak in our mathematical language to explain our thinking, then they're going to have a really hard time in math. So let's watch this video here. Um, This is actually um, one of the researchers that's talking about the science of math and he's talking about the importance of language in math. But language in mathematics is very important also. And so Sarah and Elizabeth have a couple really good pieces talking about like making sure we're doing enough providing uh, instruction on mathematical vocabulary, perhaps beginning to use writing more often within the domain of mathematics. And uh, it's it's really interesting because when you think about the science of reading movement, we hear dyslexia all over. We see those students need, we need, language is so important in how we learn and also how it's a mode in which 
students are assessed of their learning. And so we need to ensure within our mathematics classrooms that students are given the opportunity to verbalize their mathematical thinking. And uh, they're given the opportunity to acquire and then build fluency in actually using mathematical terminology correctly. All right. So like he said, language is such an important piece on how we learn. Language is used every single day in all aspects. You use particular types of language in science. You use different types of language when you're talking about history. You use different types of language when you're talking about finances or when you're talking about math, when you're talking about just us communicating day to day in our, you know, language that they would call like street language, right? So I might use lingo that maybe you don't know because you live in a different country or a different part of the um, the country of America, right? Like we have so much that we use within language. So when you are talking about math, it really is like learning a brand new language. It is understanding concepts and being able to explain our thinking because all that um, learning math is, is really just mathematical thinking and being able to put it from our heads and explain it to somebody else in a way, whether that's abstractly with our number sentences or whether that's using blocks or pictures or whatever it is. So it's so important that before you teach a lesson, you think about the vocabulary that you're going to be using and providing explanations of how you use that vocabulary, the definition of it, and having your kids use that vocabulary Um, as they are explaining, and you can help them in doing that and scaffolding that. So I'm going to kind of go through an example lesson of like how I would teach um, like addition within 10. Okay, so what I do in the very beginning is first I'm going to review a skill. So I'm, let's say we've practiced counting on an addition, you have to know how to count on. So maybe the skill that I'm going to practice just to kind of get them warmed up and to also review what we've learned is counting on. So maybe we're using a number line to count on or they're just doing it in their heads or they're using their fingers and so on. And when I'm teaching counting on, we never start at one because starting at one is just like normal counting. So I would give them a random number and they have to count on from there. So maybe I'm saying count um, on from eight or whatever, right? So there I'm having them count on. Maybe I say count on from eight, but only count on five numbers. And so now they have to start at eight and they can only count on five numbers. And this is where a number line or a concrete method is super helpful for those younger kids because they get to see how many times they've jumped on the number line, things like that. So we're going to be practicing counting on so that they are practicing it and getting warmed up. Then I'm going to go through vocabulary words. So Um, so like if I was teaching first grade, kindergarten has already kind of primed them with what is addition, what is the equal sign, um, what is a sum, what does altogether mean, what does add ends mean, right? They've already primed them for that, but I'm still going to review it to make sure that there is still that solid understanding of what all of that means. Um, I'm going to show them a number sentence. We're going to talk about each part of the number sentence. This is the add end. This is the addition um, sign. This is another add end. This is the equal sign. This is the sum. This is what it looks like when you go to write it out in a number sentence. This is how I would explain it through my words right? So really diving into using that vocabulary together, then I'm going to do that modeling. So I'm going to do a problem that I've already thought of, and I'm going to walk them 
step by step what I'm doing. So generally, I'm teaching addition within 10, but I'm also teaching a strategy. So maybe one day I'm teaching number lines, maybe, or well, let's go back. Maybe one day I'm doing a concrete method. So I'm having them use some sort of blocks or material to show the numbers so that they can count how many total they have. That's the first thing I'm going to do. Then I might move um, into using like, um, like a picture or something. So that could be like a number line. Um, that could be like a base 10. Um, uh, sorry, I just lost my train of thought, like a base 10 paper that has, um, their spots on it so they can draw a picture using their base 10 paper. Um, or like I said, number line, um, and, and or they're just drawing dots underneath each of the numbers. So now we're taking away the blocks and they're just drawing those as a picture. Um, but each day I'm teaching a different type of strategy that they can use, or I'm just saying you can use the counting up strategy, grab the number, count on, um, you know, that many. So one thing we would do is like, let's say I was doing five plus two, I might model, grab the five, count on two. So five, six, seven. And if you're listening, you can't see, but I, I put two fingers up. So once I have my two fingers up, right, because I'm adding two more, I'm done counting on. So teaching them a strategy and having them choose or practice that strategy. And then by the end of the week, they get to choose which strategy they use that is easiest for them. Okay, so I'm modeling how we do it, then we're going to do it together. And we're going to solve problems together. They're going to be talking to partners. They're going to be, or just discussing with you, right? What did they do? How did they use the strategy? How did they know that that answer was correct? Um, and I am looking for misconceptions as they are working on it with me. Then I would go into the um, independent practice. Now, in a classroom, this is how I do it. Um, obviously, if you're just working with your child, then it's going to look very different. But um, the independent piece is them working through it and them explaining to you. So in a classroom, I would have rotations. So one rotation, they are with their strategically um, picked partner and they're maybe playing a game to review a skill we've already done. And then in one of their rotations, they're using some sort of technology that is um, meant to fit their needs. So um, like I've used like Imagine Imagine learning math and this um, has them test to see where they're at and then they get to work on that skill um, that they need on that program. So they're, you know, and then some of the kids are working on their iPad on that program. And then I have a group of kids grouped with me that um, I know have maybe similar misconceptions or um, are at similar levels in math so that I can help them work through these problems. But what I do is I give them, you know, problems that they're going to work on. And as they're working through, I I am listening to them as they, I make them talk out loud to me as they're working on it. Um, they're just doing it as a whisper so that they don't disrupt others. And I'm listening for what they're doing. I'm looking at what they're doing so that right then and then or right then and there, I can provide them with very explicit feedback on whatever misconception they might have. And that gives me so much information so that I can, if they do have a misconception, and even if I corrected it, I can maybe go back and reteach. So that's kind of how I do that. But if you're a parent and you're working with them, that's all you're doing. Don't help too much. If you help too much, you'll never know what misconceptions your children have. So once you've taught that lesson and you've done it together, 
Now they're doing it on their own. You are simply just asking questions that are going to um, help you define like what misconceptions they have or to help them in explaining what their thinking is. Um, but you don't want to help too much. Unless they do have a misconception, you need to stop. You need to fix it right then in there and show them what they're doing wrong, why they're doing it wrong, and have them practice it the correct way. Um, all right. So let's talk a little bit about mindset because mindset is so important in math. You probably have heard like math anxiety and things like that. And with math anxiety, a lot of it, just like with anxiety with reading, comes from the fact that we are missing some sort of foundational skill that we need to be successful in math. And because we're not finding success um, and there are a lot of high stakes in school with different tests and things like that, it causes anxiety. And it's not that math is just like, oh, my, my kid just hates math and, and that's why. It's just they don't have the math brain. No, it's probably because they are missing something. There's something they can't do. They feel incompetent. Um, and they have to have a mindset of if I'm making a mistake, it's okay. It means I'm learning something. So like in my classroom, we celebrated mistakes. Like you make a mistake, like heck yeah, give me a high five. Let's learn something new. That obviously means that there's something that we need to learn. I'm super stoked about it. So like I celebrated the crap out of mistakes. That was something that we all were like, they made a mistake. Let's let's learn something new from it. Like it was an exciting thing. So just understanding that when we're learning something new, we're going to make mistakes. We don't want to be perfect. That's not something that is even attainable in life. We're never going to be perfect. We're always going to be evolving. We're always going to be working towards something. And we're always going to make some sort of mistake. So just really hounding in on mistakes don't mean we're dumb. Mistakes mean we're learning something new. Um, and one thing that I did notice too was, like I said, the tests. And so when I had, you know, I would give tests because I had to know, like, what can you do? Um, and so we would give tests, but it wasn't something that was like, oh man, you got a bad score. That sucks. No, it was, hey, look at these problems like that you got incorrect. Let's see how we can fix it. It wasn't like high stakes. It was very, very low stakes. Um, and they knew that. They knew that like, if I got a bad score, like that's okay. As long as I tried my best, my teacher is going to help me with these problems afterwards so that I can get better at it. Um, and one thing that I did hear from from students from time to time was I got a bad score. Mom and dad are going to be really mad at me. And I think it's important how you are, um, I guess, how you feel about their mistakes and how you feel about their learning. Because if you have any sort of anxiety over it or you get upset over it, it's going to matter for that kid. They're going to internalize that and think, oh no, I'm not doing well. My parents aren't going to be proud of me or they're not going to be um, happy with me or whatever. So the way that your mindset is, the way that you act when there is, you know, maybe a bad test score is going to make a night and day difference. If you, you know, if they come home with a bad test score, figure out what skills they need and be like, oh, hey, look, it looks like we need some more learning time on this. That's awesome. Let's sit down and let's practice together. Let's get ourselves good at this skill, right? We'll get it together and like make it something that they're like, oh, it's not a big problem. I just need to do more learning. So make sure that the way that you are um, experiencing that with your child is not in a 
dark or bad manner. Um, And another thing to know is that teaching really is, it's like a science. It is trial and error. There, even if you are like, I am using the very best practices, why doesn't my kid get it? Sometimes you have to get creative with your kid and you're like, okay, how can I explain this to them that's going to make sense? And sometimes you're going to explain it in 10 different ways. And then finally, that 10th way, they're like, oh, I get it. So when you're teaching, give yourself grace and shift your strategies. Um, And just make sure that if something's not working, change it. Change what you are doing. Um, Okay, so let's talk about fluency because it kind of goes into anxiety because people are like, don't you know, um, time the kids on math, because if you time them, it's going to give them anxiety. You need to shift your mindset with fluency because I used to be that teacher where like I put a big emphasis on fluency and we like if you, you know, got to a certain point in your fluency, you could have an ice cream party and we would, you know, however many toppings. And yes, that can be motivating for some kids, but it can also be super detrimental for some kids because I was, I I know that for a fact, like I was one of those kids. I remember um, I had to do like pass off my multiplication facts and Back when I went to elementary school, it was flashcards. So I just had to remember what three times two was. And I could not remember for the life of me any of the answers to my multiplication. And I didn't have a strategy to solve. It was just if I didn't remember, I didn't remember. And I remember like working super hard with my parents. Like every night we were trying to memorize these these multiplication facts. And at one point, I, I just I wanted to give up because I was like, this is impossible. Like, I can't remember all of this stuff. It was kind of like remembering every state capital. Like, I don't do well with memory. So um, I remember I couldn't go to the ice cream party as a kid because I didn't have all my multiplication facts um, memorized. And so I had to sit in the hallway and kill and drill these multiplication facts and I remember it so vividly and I remember just bawling my eyes out because I had to be in the hallway while everyone else was in the, you know, doing the ice cream party and I felt so dumb and like it was just impossible. And after that moment, it was kind of like I shut down in math and I didn't want to try any more in math. Like every time I made a mistake, it was like the biggest deal. I would cry like it was it was terrible and it was because there was this high stakes emphasis on it, which I get, I have to know my multiplication facts, but it was the high stakes and the fact that I didn't have any strategies to solve these problems. So when you're looking at fluency, it needs to be very, very low stakes. All they're doing is competing with themselves. No, no other stakes are on the game or on the, you know, on the table. It's can I do better than I did last time? That's it. If I solved three problems last time, can you solve four? Right? So just trying to get them to beat themselves, it makes it more of a game and it makes it more fun for them. Second thing is that you want it, you want to make sure that they have strategies to use to solve these problems. So most of the time, what I saw with students, if they weren't doing very well with their fluency, is that they were using methods that were taking too long. Like maybe their favorite method to use was a number line or was a wreck and wreck. If you don't know what a wreck and wreck is, just Google it. It's super concrete method that you can use. Um, but they would use those strategies and it was making them slow. And so I would sit them down one on one and I was like, look, look, my friend number lines are slow. 
Breckenrex are slow. We've got to get past this. Let's figure out a different strategy. So what I would do is I would do um, touch points. If you don't know what touch points are, um, each number has their own. And this is really for like not past 10, but um, within 10, you can do touch points and each number has like certain points that you can do and they can um, tap those points um, to count on. It just helps them to get that visual of counting on. Um, or I would just teach them to grab the number and we would practice the strategy of counting on. And we would just work on a couple of problems together. We'd work on counting on, we'd work on touch points or whatever it was that worked for them. And eventually they got really good at it and then they passed off their facts. So really coming back to, do they have a strategy that they can use to actually find success and make it low stakes? And that will help with this whole test anxiety thing or like fluency anxiety. All right. So I want to look at another video. The rest of these videos that we're actually looking at is really just understanding um, the way that our brains understand math, the very early literacy or not literacy, early mathematical skills that students need and really how complex it is so that you can kind of have some grace for your child and like understand that knowing how to do math is actually very complex and there's a lot we need to know. So this first video that we're going to look at um, is this same guy. He's just talking about the early numeracy skills and what they need and that they really do start early on. So let's take a listen. Numeracy skills that are really pivotal. Things like counting, right? One-to-one -one correspondence, understanding the idea of greater or less than quantity discrimination. All those early bedrock skills are integral to ensure that students are entering school well prepared to learn. Once we get into the elementary grades, becoming very fluent in whole number computation, understanding just the nature of our place value system, all of those skills become extremely integral that students build fluency in them. And then as we shift further, we then get into fractions and decimals, becoming proficient with those core skills, which then all directly will feed into algebra proficiency. Okay, so the early literacy skills that he's talking about, like one-to-one -one correspondence and counting. So obviously, like, can your child count out loud? Do they know the order of our numbers, right? And when he's saying one-to-one -one correspondence, what he means is, like, can you find an object or like move an object up and put them in order in your brain in order to count? And then the next thing that he's talking about is greater than or less than. So do they know which number is bigger? Do they know which one is smaller? And then can they look at numbers and say, or even objects and say, you know, eight objects is greater than um, seven objects or whatever. And then having them explain, how do you know? How do you know that eight is greater than seven? Um, because they have to understand the quantity or that one-to-one -one correspondence of how much eight is and how much seven is to know which one is greater than. So then he kind of goes into like, once you get into elementary school, what are the things that you need to know? Obviously you need to know how to add, you need to know how to subtract, you need to know how to multiply, you need to know how to divide, you need to know how to do um, decimals and fractions and things like that because they lead into algebra. And even, I mean, first graders were working on, you know, the 
um, cumulative and um, associative properties. And we were doing it in a very concrete way so that they could find missing numbers. They knew that, okay, when I have a problem, like an addition problem, I can flip the add-ins or my equal sign doesn't always have to be at the end. It can also start at the very beginning of a problem, right? So having them see problems in different orders to see the equal sign in different places, because if they truly understand what the equal sign means, they shouldn't have a problem with doing problems that have the equal sign at the beginning. Because if we have an equal sign, it means that each side of the equation is the same. And so they have to understand that five and two is the same as seven. That's the exact same, right? So having them understand that is super, super, super important. And we start that very early on. And the kids can get it as long as they have an understanding of, like I said, that systematic approach of what they need to know to be able to do said skill. All right. So this next video is talking about math and how it's really, truly just a way of thinking and that it's and the the abstract or the algorithms or whatever is how we explain it. It's the language we use to explain our mathematical thinking. So let's take a look at that video. Math needs years of practice. This becomes clear when we look at how children learn to understand a number, say eight, not the symbol eight, but the idea of the quantity of eight. To internalize this seemingly simple idea, children need a lot of practice in two skills. First, they need to learn how to create order, and then, later on, how to create hierarchical relationships. Let's look at order first. Construct order. When four-year-olds learn to count, most have trouble ordering objects in their heads if the things they count are unevenly distributed. Sometimes they skip objects, then they count the same ones twice. To do it right, children have to learn how to construct order in their heads. This seems easy, but actually takes our brains a lot of practice. All right, so as you can see, it, it takes a lot to understand just a quantity, to just understand how much eight is, right? And understand how you can model that, how you can explain your thinking. Um, and when he's talking about creating order, if you've ever just like handed 10 objects to your child and you're like, count them. If you haven't given them a strategy to, to actually order that, it's really hard for them. They will count the same thing over and over again, and then they get really confused and they don't know which one they've counted. So it's important to even give them a skill of how can we order this so that we know what we've counted and what we haven't counted, right? So I would always have my students when we were working like one-to-one -one correspondence, right? That's the constructing order. I would have them move the object to another spot. So I'd give them the 10 objects and they would have to touch and move the object. So one, I moved one, two, three, and so on. And that helps them to understand how they can construct order. There's a lot going on in our brains when we are trying to understand numbers. All right, so I have got one more video. Um, and what this video is really talking about is how we learn math through experiences. So not only is it that we, um, you know, are just told, here's the algorithm, here's how you do it, but we actually learn through real life experiences. We learn through 
actually building. Um, there was a study done where they looked at um, like somebody that just was like at a farmer's market. Let's say they're not very educated. They haven't been taught the algorithm, but they are really, really good at math. And it's not because somebody came and showed them how to do it. No, they just had real life experiences on how to do math and they were very successful business owners, right? And once they gave them an algorithm and they were like, here's the algorithm, it was the same math they were doing in their heads and able to do. But once they had the algorithm, they couldn't do it. And it was because that is how we are expressing our thinking is through the algorithms. And so if they're not taught that language, they're never going to know how to do the algorithm, but they know how to do the math. And so you do have some kids like that where they're really good at math, but once you give them the algorithm, they start to get a little bit confused and it's not their fault. It's the fault of the person teaching them that they did not give them the vocabulary they needed. They're missing something systematically that is making that algorithm a little harder for them to understand. So let's look at this video. Um, and I, I just want, like I said, to have you think about how much of an experience you need in learning math. Experiences precedes language. As we demonstrated, it takes a child a lot of mental training and hands-on experiences to form the concept of a number. At the age of five, we can build a simple row of eight, later form eight square, then eight root. Only once we have constructed number concepts inside our heads can we effectively learn how to express them with images, symbols, and language. That is why it's important that we go through those stages of concrete, which is building with objects. Then we go to the visual representation, right? So this is when we're drawing pictures. And then we can go to the abstract, which is actually the number eight, the symbol eight. This is how we represent this amount of blocks. This is how we represent this picture is through this number eight right? So now we're bringing it into the abstract. And so it's, I feel like that gets missed a lot is that concrete part. But it is so crucial to your child understanding how to do math, right? And how to be successful in math. So I want to um, end this with a couple of just like action, not even action steps, but just like to sum it all up here is that if we don't want to have math anxiety, we have to make sure we have a correct mindset. We have to have a growth mindset. Just because you don't know how to do something yet doesn't mean you're not capable of it, right? And celebrating small wins and also not making a big deal about mistakes and just being there as a support to help your child and to use those best practices, thinking about what are the holes that my child has and how can I actually support them in those holes using best practices, right? I'm modeling for them what I'm doing. What are you doing in your head? How do you solve that problem? Explain that to your child. And if that doesn't make sense to them, research other ways you could explain it. There are so many resources out there on YouTube and <clears throat> just on the internet that you could ask a question of how can I explain X, Y, and Z to my child? And there will be a lot of different um, ideas on how you can do that. Um, so I do have a couple of resources um, that I would recommend. Nobody's paying me for this. This is just 
resources that I believe are either really good or seem to be very, very awesome. Okay. So <clears throat> the first one is synthesis.is. It's a brand new IA, IA tool and it seems so crazy good. I've not used it actually, but just based on what I've seen, it seems amazing. So what it is, is it's basically like having an A, like a tutor, but it's AI and they never actually tell the children the answer. So they are giving them this concrete method by showing them different pictures by um, working through all of what we've just talked about today, but through a computer program essentially. And if the child is not solving the problem correctly, they don't just give them an answer. <clears throat> an answer, AI actually um, gives them a question that prompts them in the direction of what they might need to do next to solve the problem. So they never, like I said, that's amazing because most programs do tell them an answer and then they can also work with other kids within the program and they can play games that are all mathematical based. So it's a very like critical thinking, problem solving um tool that does not just rely on them giving the answer and when they are working with other kids they have to work together as a team they have to cheer each other on they have to explain to the child like hey this is what I did to solve let's see if you can you know and it's it's just it seems like an amazing application so if you wanted to look into that you could um, and then IXL IXL is not as great as what I think synthesis AI is but it's fine. Um, but IXL does the job. Um, you can, uh, you know, have them test to see what skills exactly they need. And it gives them pretty semi-boring videos, but it at least is good at teaching them the skills. Um, and then you can have your child practice those. Um, and then there's Imagine Learning Math. Um, and this one is a pretty good program. Again, this is what I used. I found somewhat of success with it. You can also assign specific lessons to children, um, which is super helpful if you know what their holes are. Although at the beginning of the program, you have them test um, and then it just provides them like a roadmap basically of where they need to start and where they need to go. So it's a very systematic approach um, and it is semi-game based. So it's fun for them that way. Um, and then they also have Imagine Learning Math Facts. Um, again, this is going to tell them the answer if they don't get it correct. Um, but it's super fun for them because it's very game based. So it's not high stakes and they get to practice their fluency and it has addition, subtraction, division, and multiplication. So it does have that aspect. Um, so a couple of Instagram pages that I actually follow that I love, their ideas are fantastic. Um, the first one is Math Teacher Mom Blog. Um, I would say this is more for like younger intermediate math, um, so those younger grades, um, but she has a ton of concrete methods to explain mathematical facts or mathematical skills um, that your child might be doing, whether that be addition, subtraction, fractions, things like that. So or even like division. She does division and multiplication too. So super awesome, I would say, from like K to third grade-ish. Then there is Math Teacher Love, and she's more advanced. So she's actually a fourth grade teacher. So she's going to be, um, she definitely talks a lot more, um, she talks about a lot more advanced math. And so if you have an older child, she would be a great person to look into. 
Um, and then if you do want more information on the science of math, um, they do have that web page. Like I said, they go through different misconceptions that you might have about like proficiency and conceptual and procedural procedural understanding, um, inquiry-based versus explicit instruction, algorithms, all kinds of stuff. And they just have um, different pages there. And then um, they also have just a bunch of other resources too. So if you wanted to look into that, you could. Um, but I hope that this was somewhat helpful for you. You got something out of it. Um, and I hope that you continue to find success and that you just continue learning and getting better. And we will see you next time. <music>